I am Jimbo Paris, and you are listening to the Jimbo Paris Show. Today we have Bob Ginsburg. How's it going? All right. How are you, Jimbo? Nice to be with you. You too. You too. Doing well. So you have a very, very interesting story. So can you please begin by kind of running into it? Well, yeah, you know, if we go back 20 years ago, I was a much different person than I am now. I was leading a typical uh, family life, you know, three kids, the house, the cars, you know, the good job, everything that people would term as success. I, My son and my daughter were involved in a serious car accident and my daughter didn't survive her injuries, and my son was had serious injuries. And um, eventually he did recover, and when he did, I started to reflect back on the morning of the accident, you know, when my wife sat up in bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, just, just sat straight up and started trembling and shaking, and she was, you know, obviously in distress. And I said, what's the matter? And she said to me that something horrible was going to happen that day. And I tried to get more information, but she didn't have any details. She just said, I just know we're going to be devastated today, you know. And I I let my guard down at night. I did take it seriously because she had had many uh, intuitive experiences in our our lives together. And they were all good things, but they always play out exactly the way she saw them. So I figured if she was right then, she could be right now. But, you know, I, it, I, I didn't, that was at a time in my life where I didn't really believe in things that were non-physical. I didn't believe in things like uh, telepathy and intuitiveness or certainly an afterlife. And, um, I, you know, as I said, I let my guard down that night and I made certain decisions that I wish I didn't made, didn't make. And um, it happened. So that led me to after that happened, it led me on a search all over the United States, meeting with medical doctors and scientists and researchers, because I wanted to find out how my wife knew, because she knew. And I wanted to find out information from people that were credentialed, you know, that that studied consciousness. And one thing led to another. We eventually, uh, the, the evidence that we uncovered was astounding. And we formed a foundation back in 2003 called Forever Family Foundation. And uh, now it's grown to, you know, a worldwide organization. There's well over 11,000 members. And people have a hunger and a thirst for this kind of knowledge today. And uh, as you may have seen, we featured in a Netflix documentary called Surviving Death. And that's done well because, again, People are interested in things like near-death experiences and reincarnation and mediumship and after-death communications. And these things can have a profound effect upon one's grief. So, you know, what we do, when I say we, I mean the foundation, kind of emerging uh, emergence of, of spirituality and science, you know. There's, there's a fine line. Sometimes you can't even tell which is which. <laughs> a lot of – today's a lot of today's, – a lot of today's physicists – sound like spiritualists when you talk to them, you know. So that's, uh, that's in a nutshell, what, what, you know, uh, my story. And I, I learn every day. I just, um, you know, uh, from uh, people sharing experiences, talking to the scientists, talking to the researchers, and uh, 
just being out there. Excellent story. And this is a massive topic we're covering here. So I want to kind of hone it down more on something about you. What were some of the biggest breakthroughs that you personally found through the foundation and through your personal life experiences? Well, you know, at the, at the beginning, after my, my daughter passed, um, as I mentioned, I didn't believe in any of this. My wife was having all of these incredible experiences that were happening all around me, and I just kept refusing to accept them. I would chalk everything up to coincidence, you know. But there were some, you know, uh, interesting things that were happening. I mean, the, the first thing that happened, um, which I didn't find out about till later because nobody told me, but... Uh, my daughter was 15 years old when she passed. When she was 13, she made her best friend enter into a pact with her. And and the pact was that if either one of them were to die, they had to make up a sign that they would communicate from the other side so that the other friend would know that they still existed. And the sign that my uh, daughter uh, made up was that she was going to leave a blue magic marker, you know, pen in an unusual place. And the best friend, Allie, told my wife that after my daughter's funeral, she walked into her room and neatly placed on her computer keyboard was a blue magic marker, which she said was significant because she didn't own one. And she's, you know, hasn't hadn't used one, you know, in you know many, many years. So, of course, I heard that. And, you know, to me, it was an interesting story, but I figured it had to be, a, you know, a physical explanation. But things like that kept happening over and, and over and over again. And it took many years, but I, I eventually uh, relented. You know, I would, my wife and, and others told me to journal these things when they happened so I could reflect back on. And I, and I journaled the more, more significant things that, that were happening, and some involving mediums, you know, some not. Um, most of them were not. And when I had 20 of these incredible experiences, I actually sought the services of, of a statistician, and I had him help me calculate the odds against chance. This is how sick I was, you know, to see whether or not this, this is, I'm just imagining it or, or it's true. And when I had 100 separate encounters, each with odds against chance of over a million to one, I stepped back, you know, this was years later, and I said, okay. I, I relent. I, you know, I, I give up. This has to, the most logical explanation is that we'd survive our physical deaths, that our minds are separate from our physical brains, and we're more than our physical bodies. When hearing all these logical points, when did you first ever begin to really understand how something like clairvoyance worked? That high end intuition that, you know, some people are just born with. Well, I, you know, I, I kept bumping into people that had these abilities. I, I approached it from the science end of it. So I studied um, J.B. Ryan, you know, back in the 1930s, uh, did all sorts of um, experiments with, with telepathy. Uh, he, he had simple experiment, uh, experiments. He, he developed what he called uh, Zener cards. And they were five different cards with five different geometric shapes. And he would, you know, randomly, you know, have a, a shut the card shuffled, have somebody sitting before him that was intuitive, and he would ask them to guess what card was coming up. 
Um, and there were many, many variations of this. So if you or I were doing this, we had a 20% chance of guessing it right, you know, one out of five cards. And what he found that some people, instead of getting 20% right, would get 40% right, which was statistically, you know, improbable. And when you when you do this with thousands and thousands and thousands of trials, you see that 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 the phenomenon is real. Uh, there was another uh, laboratory set up at Princeton called the Pear Lab, and they also did thousands and thousands of these trials. And you know, Dean Radin, a famous scientist, with, did a lot of other work. And and when they when the statisticians compile the data, they they find that the odds against chance, you know, were extraordinary, like in the billions to one of these, these things occurring. So that, you know, opened my mind, as you kind of alluded to, is like, how does no, why does nobody know about this? You know, the evidence is so, you know, compelling. The first step in believing that there's an afterlife or that we survive our physical deaths is showing that our brains are not the same as our minds. When I say mind, you can use the term consciousness, or you could use the term soul, or you could use the term energy. But something can act independently of our physical brains. I mean, think about it. If, you know, if, if I'm thinking of a friend and I'm sitting in on the East Coast of the United States and my friend is on the West Coast, um, and I haven't thought about this you know, friend in 15 years, and as soon as I get done thinking of him, you know, the phone rings and it's, it's this friend. There's some sort of communication that takes place, not through our physical brains, because my brain is 3,000 miles away from my friend's brain, but, but communication, information surrounds us, you know. I mean, we can't always, we're not consciously aware of it, but yet these information fields and these communication um, fields, you know, uh, are always present. So, you know, there are things like remote viewing. I know we don't have time to get into a lot of these things, but remote viewers... Our own CIA had a team of remote viewers during the Cold War. And these people, for lack of a better explanation, they could send their mind to a distant location. The government would give them a latitude and a longitude of some significant uh, place, usually a uh, missile silo or some place where the enemy was, was building weapons. And these people were able to send their consciousness to these distant sites draw accurate drawings of, of all the play, the uh, geometric shapes and the, and the exact measurements and, 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 and see all of these things. Interestingly enough, sometimes when they would later find out that the things that they drew at those coordinates were no longer there, um, and sometimes they found out um, that they would be here in, in there in the future or they wouldn't. <laughs> They were there in the past, which shows that's also mind-boggling um, because it shows that time as we know it is is, is fluid, you know, uh, it's not linear. So, um, so, so all these things that show telepathy, uh, if you can show that minds can communicate mind to mind, then belief that our minds could survive physical death becomes plausible, you know, logical. I used to think... You know, 20 years ago, I said, that, that's bold. You know, I mean, what could possibly survive? We talk about survival. That's how we refer to the, to the field. Survival, you know, we are, I used to think that we are our brains. So when our brains die and we're buried or cremated, there's nothing survives. So that's it. 
you know, the, the death was final. But if you could show that 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 energy continues, it opens up all sorts of possibilities. And we study near-death experiences, um, you know, deathbed visions, after-death communications, mediumship, incarnation, all sorts of, of things that point in that direction. Pretty, it's fascinating. Um, but it also, you know, today it's, we find that it's not only people that are in grief uh, that are bereaved that that come to the foundation, although a lot, a lot, a lot of people are in that situation. But a lot of people today, especially in this age of the pandemic and so forth, are are, are questioning their own mortality. They're looking for some meaning. They're looking, they're starting to think about things that they never thought of before. And and you know, we try to provide information. We're not trying to convince anybody, and just open up some minds to the possibilities. That was a lot of interesting stuff you hit there, especially with the remote viewing and how some of those people can actually predict what can happen to a location in the future. Yeah, you know, I did a like quickly, but I, I once did a remote viewing experiment on my own. It wasn't a scientific experiment, but you know, um, and I'm not a scientist, but since we have this audience and this platform, I get to do this stuff, you know. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV, that kind of thing. So so we set up this remote viewing experiment. And I said to – I sent out a message um, on our website and through emails to our membership saying, look, every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, between the hours of 9 and 9.15 p.m. Eastern, I'm going to draw a picture. That's all I said. You know, that, that means it could be millions of different things, even though I'm a horrible artist. But nonetheless – I said, anybody that thought that even if you don't believe in it, try to tune in and try to you draw at the same time what you think I'm drawing. And I purposely wouldn't think of what I was going to draw until 15 seconds before 9 p.m. because I wanted to try to eliminate the possibility of just reading my mind. And at the end of the five days, on the last day, I said, hey, you know what, I'm going to mix it up. I'm going to, instead of drawing a picture, I'm going to draw a geometric shape. And I drew a dot with concentric circles. around it. And then I start looking and people started mailing in. This is quite a long time ago. It wasn't internet, wasn't that popular. So people were physically mailing in the responses and I'm opening up all the envelopes. And frankly, I wasn't really impressed. I mean, some of the things were a stretch, but you know, I thought it was, a, the experiment was a failure. The very last open envelope that I opened up was from a woman in Bend, Oregon. Three out of the five pictures that I drew were exact. You know, I mean, exact to how I drew it. And that last day when I drew the, on Friday, when I drew the concentric circles, she nailed that too, except that she drew it on Thursday. So that raises the question of who was remote viewing who. You know, that just shows you, you know, uh, again, with, with time, you know. So that was also a turning point for me because it wasn't something that I, even though I read a lot, a lot about remote viewing, I, didn't, I controlled this. I knew that there was no fraud. You know, I controlled everything, you know. So to me, um, it, it was different. It was personal. It wasn't like I was reading a research paper. So that also was one of the things that opened up my mind, to, you know, to keep going all all this stuff. That was a lot of interesting stuff. Now, if we were to now continue on, what about mediumship? Because that's a topic you really discuss quite heavily. What is your yeah. take on mediumship? 
Well, we're, we're very much, um, you know, involved in that as another ectoplasm, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, okay. So you hit on three, uh, a point there. There there's three different types of mediumship. What people are familiar with now is called mental mediumship. You know, 99.9% of all the mediums out there. That's what they practice. Mental mediumship, meaning it's mind to mind communication, even though, one of the parties, the person that's in another realm, doesn't have a body anymore, but still has a mind. So the mediums are still, it's still considered to be mind-to-mind communication. Ectoplasm that you referred to was a form of physical mediumship, which during the Victorian uh, era, you know, back in the 1910, 1920, 20s, um, that was there were million, I shouldn't say millions, but there were a couple of thousand physical mediums that were out there. It was centers of entertainment. You know, there was no TV or no internet. People used to gather in seances. And these physical mediums, the ones that were legitimate, um, the mediumship, during the seance, physical things used to happen. Um, levitation of objects, uh, you know, shooting lights, um Airports, things like seemingly falling out of the sky like coins or gems. Um, and uh, ectoplasm, which is a material that supposedly exudes from the medium, um, and then it gives the person, the discarnate, the person in the spirit realm, a, a foundation on which they can imprint their face, their voice, and so forth. Sounds mind-boggling. The problem with physical mediumship is that the mediums insist that these seances take place in total darkness. So, as you can imagine, there were a tremendous amount of fraud. They knew all the tricks. You know, they would have, you know, they would touch people with, with you know, with broom handles, and they'd set up secret lights and all sorts of stuff. Um, but some were studied by... Um, pillars in, in, in the world of academia and, and medical science. And, and a lot of them came to the conclusion that these, some of these mediums really could do, you know, what, what they claim to do. We don't see very many uh, physical mediums today. There are some uh, about seven or eight years ago, I traveled to watch a, a, a medium, a physical medium from, from Europe and I sat in the seance in darkness, which I, I couldn't stand. Um, and I had all these things happening. I saw, a, a, you know, they call it a trumpet, which is a like a cardboard cylinder, you know. I, and they put some reflecting tape on it. And you could see that, that levitating. I got um, kind of, you know, smacked in the side of the head and in the shoulder forcefully, too, like about 10, 15 times. I walked out of there and I said, how can I make a, an independent judgment? It was either something incredible or it was a total fraud. And I didn't have the tools to make a, to make a, a realistic judgment on it because I was sitting in the dark, you know? So, you know, and there aren't very many mediums out there today. So f- for the most part, uh, mental, there's mental mediumship. Right? I didn't mention trance mediumship, um, which is sort of an in-between where the person in spirit takes over the body of the medium and starts talking using the medium's vocal cords. Uh, you don't see that too much at all. But yes, we are very involved in mediumship. Um, the reason that I wrote the book, The Medium Explosion, is because 
I state flatly on there that in my opinion, based upon, you know, 18 or 19 years of, of working with mediums and witnessing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of readings that 90%, 85 to 90% of all the practicing mediums today cannot do what they claim. Not to say that they're all fraudulent, you know, some are, most aren't, but they're just, they have some intuitive ability as do we all in various degrees and they see so-and-so on TV and they want to be like them and, Next thing you know, they're hanging out a shin- shingle and charging people a lot of money and they have like a booming business. You know, there are no licensing bodies when it comes to mediumship. I mean, there are no proficiency guidelines. There's no ethical standards. There's no licensing. I mean, you or I say, can say tomorrow, you know, we're a medium and, and you know, and, and set up in business. So it's a problem. Um, but then there are that other 10 to 15% that truly can do what they claim. Um, scientists have studied them under uh, extreme, you know, controlled uh, conditions using blinded protocol and have come to the conclusion that, you know, that it's real. We started our own medium certification program back in 2005, and we've been evaluating these mediums under controlled conditions. You know, there was a series of readings for sitters, sitters meaning the people that are getting the readings, who are instructed in how to score the information. And, you know, um, and specific information is more valuable than general information. So, I mean, let's say you are the medium, Jimbo, and I'm the sitter, and you're giving me a reading, and you look at me, you could see me, and you're saying, hey, Bob, I, I have your, your grandmother here in spirit. Well, you know, looking at my age, there's a pretty damn good chance that I have a grandmother in spirit, right? She'd be well over, you know, she'd be 110 or whatever. So so um, now if I was a sitter and I have a grandmother in spirit, I would have to mark that as a true statement. But if you said to me, Bob, I have your grandmother Rebecca here, and my grandmother's name was Rebecca, that carries more weight because now it's a specific, you know, thing. So uh, and mediums know all sorts of the, the the mediums that are fraudulent use all sorts of cold reading techniques. Uh, you know, today uh, mediums, uh, because of the pandemic, they stopped doing readings person to person. So they're doing it all on platforms like this or on Zoom and Facebook and so forth. And uh, we, one of the mediums that has been certified by our foundation told me a couple of months ago, he caught another medium it was a Zoom thing. You know, when they register on Zoom, the medium sees their full name. So on one side of the screen, the medium was looking at the sitter. And on the other side of the of the medium screen, he had the person's Facebook page open and was giving back all the information that he was seeing on Facebook. Total fraudulent, you know, thing. You want to, you know, and, and this is what goes on, you know. So you have to, you have to guard against that and, we try to educate people on you know how to act when they see a medium, what how to score it, how to behave, what information to give and not give, and so forth. So um, it is a problem, um, and um, you know the reason I called it the medium explosion because there's little literally an explosion of mediums now that are on every street corner. You know, it used to be something uh, quite different, but now um, and there, and there is a, a difference between psychics and mediums, even though a lot of people don't realize it, and that there are many people that are psychic and can give you psychic information, but they have no ability to communicate with the dead. So, you know, they can be doing a reading for me and say, wow, 
did you just paint your bedroom blue? Because that's what I'm seeing. And if I painted my bedroom blue recently, that would be a strong hit. But it doesn't show anything about life after death. It's just psychic mind-to-mind communication from one living mind to another. So there's a difference between the two. Now, when it comes to all this mediumship and your medium certification process, do you have any sort of interesting stories about people that you've certified, people that were the real deal, people that were frauds? If you kind of go into this a little bit more, because this sounds very interesting to me. Yeah, you know, we set up the medium certification program for one reason only, and that was to be a resource for the bereaved. We wanted people to have a resource that they could rely upon when seeking the services of a medium. We haven't certified a lot of mediums because, you know, we have to evaluate 10 mediums to find one that can really do it. And most of the mediums, a great number of them um, that we've certified have gone on to become famous. They have TV shows, they write books. They So then you know what happens. I mean, um, you can't get they're booked up two, three, four years in advance and they're charging crazy money. So it kind of defeats the purpose. So that's one of the things that we have to do now is, is start um, getting more involved and in, in evaluating more mediums. But, um, you know, sitting in, 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 in watching some of these readings, especially when I know something about the sitter, some of the information that these certified mediums come up with is just, you know, it's nothing that you can you can be that can be researched. I mean, the, the, you know, they're the true deal. Um, I, the, the one interesting story: um, people lots of times ask if our loved ones in the afterlife keep tabs on us. You know, that they that they see what's going on in our physical lives. So, one interesting story. I think I put this in the book. I don't even remember, but. Uh, a medium certified by a foundation. She's doing a reading for in person with this woman and she's bringing through this woman's deceased mom and she's bringing through a lot of evidence, you know, so there's no doubt in the sitter's mind that her mom is communicating with her. And then all of a sudden the medium said, "Um, wait, your mom um, says one shot, you know, what does that mean? And one shot goes two shots, two shots fired. And the meal, the sitter's sitting there saying, what the, what's going on here? Like, goes, the medium says, three shots. And then she goes, four shots. And she goes, five shots fired, two people dead. And then she goes, three people dead. And now this woman wants to get up and leave. You know, why would a mother be saying something like that? And then you hear, she hears, and the sitter hears, outside you know, the medium's home where the reading was taking place, sirens. And and one police car after another is pulling up. And it turns out that at that very moment, there were two houses down from where the medium lives, it was an estranged family. The husband came home and opened fire, you know, you know, and killed, you know, his ex-wife, his ex-wife's mother and, and a child. And there were five shots fired and there were three people that were dead. So, I mean, that's kind of where, you know, that, that fine line between was that information being communicated from mom in the spirit world that was, you know, or was it supposed to be a warning or was it psychic information that she was pick on, picking on? But it kind of addresses the, the question of um, did it keep tabs? 
uh, you know, another more uh, humorous kind of a story is that my, my wife passed um, last year and I was, um, sometimes I talk to her out loud and, and about two, three months ago, I'm washing the dishes in a newly remodeled kitchen and, I, you know, I just talk out loud to my wife and you said, you know what, I don't care what you say. This sink is poorly designed because every time I wash the damn dishes, water goes all over the place and on the counter. The next morning I wake up and I get an email from one of the mediums that I know um, who's certified by the foundation that also knew my wife very well. And she says, Baba, I had to write to you this morning because I was meditating this morning. And during my meditation, Fran, my wife, you know, popped in and said, I need you to contact Bob and, and mention the kitchen sink. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I had just said those words, you know, like the night before, you know, so that to me says that, yeah, she's listening, you know, and I think our loved ones do pay attention to what's going on in our physical lives. With a lot of these different experiences that you've had, what did you learn through all of this medium certification process and work. What types of expertise can you kind of transfer on to the audience here and transfer on or what you did transfer on to yourself through that experience? Well, you, you know, when it comes to mediumship, a, a lot of us, I once did a survey, you know, and I, I, I asked one question. I asked people in our foundation, I said, if, if given the choice would you rather have communication from your loved one directly to you or through the services of the medium? Now, I assumed when I devised the question, the vast majority would say, I'd rather get a communication from them directly. But yet, I was really surprised because the majority said they'd rather get the information through a medium. And when I started to probe into that to find out the reasons why, I found out one um, there's a certain degree of fear that people have, um, you know, when it comes to things that can't be explained in, by physical terms, especially with the media portrays the stuff in, in, a, in a kind of a, of a woo-woo type of, of light. Um, and two, a lot of people said that if I got the information directly, I would question myself. Um, is it real or am I making it up? Whereas if it came through a third party, a professional, so to speak, then I could trust the information. And those were the two main reasons why. But, I mean, I think that everybody, the goal would be to pe- for people to have um, direct communication. One of the most common types of after-death communication are dream visitations. When people were in that REM stage of sleep, they, you know, the person on the other side, the person in the, in, uh, in the afterlife were as a conduit to get through, our chatter mind is set aside and it's like a pure conduit. And it seems that um, based upon the evidence of the past you know, hundred years since it's been studied is that during these visitations, you know, people are, they see their loved one. Sometimes they can talk to them. Sometimes they could hug them. Sometimes they could smell them. Uh, sometimes they can gain information from them. They describe these visitations as being realer than real and it stays with them. They don't, in a typical dream, I know I can't remember my dreams when I wake up, but a visitation, you know, stays with you and you have recall of them. Um, so um, 
I think that, you know, mediums are an example, you know, um, of, uh, of communication with the other side, but it's not the only way to do it. But I think that uh, mediums, uh, you know, I address some of these things in the book. How do you find a medium? It's not easy because if I refer a medium to you, and because I, I got a great reading, that's not a guarantee that you're going to get a great reading as well because there's three parties involved. There's you, the sitter, there's the medium, and there's the person in spirit. And there has to be a resonance among the whole thing. Maybe the person in spirit doesn't want to communicate through that particular medium, you know. Maybe the sitter is so overwhelmed with their grief that they're not thinking straight. You know, maybe it, there's a lot of things that even the best mediums, um, they um, there are times where you know communication is not taking place. The difference between somebody that's really really good a medium is that those those times are very few and far between. But any medium that says that they'll guarantee a reading, um, that's somebody you should stay away from. You know, or any medium that asks you who you would like to speak with, that's not playing by the rules either. You know, they're supposed to bring forth, you know, somebody to you. Uh, or a medium that says that you're not allowed to record the session, um, that also is a warning flag. You know? So there are a lot of different warning flags that we get into. But I have seen, and there have been peer-reviewed clinical studies uh, by various researchers that show that a medium reading, a really strong medium reading, can have a pr- profound effect on somebody's grief. I mean, after all, what could give you more hope and comfort than the knowledge that your loved one, you know, still exists in some form? Um, so all of this information, um, the studies also show that those who believe in life after death do better in their grieving process than those who don't. Um, now, some people, it's enough because of their religion or whatever other influence to have, they have blind faith and that that's okay. Um, for people like me, that was never enough because I needed the evidence, you know, so some people want, you know, want to see the evidence and that makes the, um, the effect of such communications that, that much uh, greater because um, you can evaluate it, you know, instead of just accepting it. You know, I'm not one of these people, like there are a lot of people in the spiritual community that would argue with me. There are people that say that there are no coincidences. That, you know, there's no such thing as chance. Everything is for a reason. Could be true. I don't personally sus- subscribe to that. I think that there are some things are, are, are signs, but not everything is a sign from our loved one. Not every penny that you find in the street is a, is a, is a sign, you know, from a, from a loved one. I think that some things truly are coincidences, although there are definitely some organizing principles in the universe of why synchronicities happen when seemingly unrelated events come together to form meaning. But I think that, and, and I've thought about this for the past 20 years, I think we all do, we question what's the purpose of being here, you know? Um, and I think that maybe this physical realm is the only place because of all all the chaos and all the randomness that goes on. It's how we react to and adjust to the things that are put before us that determine what happens afterwards. Um, You know, I think that, and people think I'm crazy for saying it, but our, our world, our physical world, 
is random, and it's random by design. It's part of a big continuum in life, but this is the only place where we could show the most growth. So, you know, we ha- how we react and how we face adversity um, very, very well affect how we, um, let's, let's say, where we wind up on the other side. You know, I think that we, we go on near-death experiences tell us that they have a life review. And in that life review, which goes across the screen like a movie, um, they are shown all of the, the happiness and joy and love that they showed to others. They could feel it, but at the same time, they also feel all of the discomfort and the pain that they also cause to others, and that's not a comfortable situation. And I think that I don't think there's a panel of judges that say you go here or you go there. It's all self-judgment. We go to people that think like us, so to speak, you know, and that's where we wind up. You know, so there may be different spheres of existence after this physical realm. And what motivated you to write the book, The Medium Explosion? Was it all of these experiences you listed here about your certification history? Yeah, I mean, I wrote it basically because I was pissed off at the people getting ripped off by phony mediums. And put it that way. You know, I wanted it to be, um, you know, educational. At the same time, I wanted to, you know, mix in a bit about other types of evidence of an afterlife. And I also put in the book some of these profound personal experiences that that I had that can be explained by scientific research because I wanted to show it as incredible as they were that there's some evidence behind it and some research behind it. So it's not only about mediumship, but really uh, I wrote it as an educational tool to show what mediums are, the misconceptions. People hear the term medium and they just think that if you're a medium, you're a medium, and everybody's the same. They're not. You know, mediums get information in different ways. They communicate information in different ways. Some are more proficient than others. You know, some are fraudulent. Like everything else in life, you know, every every profession is good and bad. Just so happens, this is a profession where people, mediums, have a, a really big responsibility. They're sitting with people that are on the edge, you know, people that are just holding on. Um, and the information that they can give them can be either detrimental or it could be life-saving to them. So I would, I urge people just um, to think long and hard before they enter into the world of becoming, you know, a medium, because it comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility. And what type of responsibility is that? I think that in a sense, I mean, mediums and we counsel them that under no circumstances should they ever refer to themselves as grief therapists or grief counselors. But in effect, what they are doing is a form of grief therapy because it's providing um, an alternative in many cases to traditional therapies. Um, You know, a lot of mental health professionals, they counsel their patients to separate from the loss, you know, okay, move on with your life, you know, it's time to, you know, forget and, you know, and move on. Whereas progressive thinking uh, therapists take the opposite uh, approach, and they encourage people to continue the relationship, obviously, in a different way, but to, you know, keep them 
not only in your heart, but, you know, you can talk to them. You can try to communicate with them. They're always going to remain part of your life. Uh, I think mediums should be trained um, in, in, in grief. They should, they should take a couple of courses because there is a way to talk to people you know, instead of just blurting out information, you know, uh, and, they, and they should never, for instance, they may get information from a loved one that the sitter has a, has a very serious physical problem. So you don't just say to the sitter, you better get your, your ass over to a doctor right now. <laughs> you, you know, you have to couch your words in a certain way that's not threatening, but, you know, making them understand. So there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of mediums. May, I could put five mediums in the room and they're getting information collectively and maybe the same way, but how they interpret the information, how do they put it into words uh, makes the difference. You know, they may see an image. Sometimes they interject their own conscious interpretations and that's where they get into trouble. They, what the medium should do is just give what they get. Information, what the sitters figure hmm. That that's quite interesting because what do you think a lot of mediums take is on that about bringing in their own conscious interpretation? Because I do know there's kind of a gist in that. There's some fortune tellers or psychics that kind of like to be more of a a coach, kind of pushing their advice. Like this is a bad thing, but here's some advice on how to prevent that. Or so forth. What do you think about all that? Because do you think the future could potentially be changed if this medium tries to push in their own conscious thing, or do you think it's just making the whole situation worse? Um, you know, psychic information can be can be dangerous. You know, uh, because we we all have these different pathways, and you know, like a tree, and you know, th- they may see a future path one way, but free will makes it go the other way. You know, so there's no way of determining that. So, you know, having people make life-changing decisions based upon psychic information is not good. Um, and, um, and of course, the way we think of things, there's no way to evaluate how accurate they are because they're telling you something that's going to happen in the future. Uh, you won't be able to evaluate whether they're right or wrong until that actually happens or it doesn't happen. Whereas with mediumship, we can score it right away. We know whether it's true or not. So I think that there are uh, people that give um, good um, psychic information that can be, and you better be prepared to hear the bad stuff if you're willing to hear the good stuff. Uh, You know, so um, I don't particularly um, care for, I mean, I, I know that, if you go on there, these these there are these websites, a lot of money, and you pay by the minute, you know, and most of it's a bunch of crap. <laughs> but you know, so I think there's more phony psychics than there are phony mediums. And when all of this happens, what do you think is the future of this nonprofit foundation? Why is it nonprofit? Well, we you know we most of what we do is is we don't charge for membership. Nobody in our organization has ever got paid a nickel from the you know top to the bottom. Uh, we have grief retreats like the one that was featured in Surviving Death um, that we obviously have to charge whatever our expenses are. But the mediums and the researchers and the mental health professionals all donate their time, you know, to come. We just want we don't want to put a price on information. We want people to receive the information that that they need and deserve, you know, without being you know having to pay for it. Um, so 
I think that you know we just keep growing as interest keeps keeps as interest keeps growing, and that feeds back. And we have a weekly radio show. We cut back on some of the things that we do. We have these grief retreats. We have webinars, um, and 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 um, people just seem to more and more have a have a thirst for knowledge and to explore these things and keep an open mind. So I don't I don't know where it where it goes, but it's gonna. It just keeps snowballing, so I, I don't know where it ends. But you know, if if we don't develop a strong infrastructure, I don't know you know what'll happen ten years from now. But hopefully, things will keep moving. We've been doing it since two thousand and three, and oddly enough, without charging for membership, you know, we do find you know financially. When I say fine, we're able to keep pay our bills and keep going because people make private donations. Because, you know, it struck me one day, I had to do some research and I needed some quotes. And there's a web, there's a, an organization called Great Nonprofits, and they rate various nonprofits. And you could leave comments. And I hadn't looked at it in like seven or eight years. And I, I logged into the Great Nonprofits and I started reading some of the the accounts. There were like five, six hundred accounts. And some of them brought me to tears, you know, how the people were... They were at the brink. They really didn't want to live. The information changed their life. They're now leaving productive lives. You know, you don't know how many times people wrote, you saved my life. And I was just floored, you know, floored by it. You know, I got emotional because um, what could be better? I mean, there's, there's nothing better, even if it was one person. But now you have all these, you know, hundreds of people. So, you know, the, the, these things are not openly discussed. You know, people have these experiences but they won't even share them with their families or friends because they're afraid of being judged or labeled crazy or uh, consumed with their grief. It's not acceptable. And the scientists, they've had their careers um, restricted and, and, and they've been shunned with their colleagues for even studying some of these phenomena. So it, it's a topic now, though, I've seen the progression as time moves on that it is becoming more acceptable and more open. And I think we're moving in the right direction. What we try to urge people is to open up and sh- just share what you experience. That's the way we'll change worldview. If people are no longer afraid to talk about these things, it becomes mainstream. And that, that think that's a good thing. And what do you consider? So let me get more into this. And we're working with mediums and all these other things. What would you consider the ideal medium? the medium that you would just recommend most people to go to. Now, I understand you mentioned that dynamic about the three people, but I'm just talking more about the medium as a person. Who would you personally want to go to? Well, to to me, it's all about the evidence. So, uh, you know, I I just want to go to the medium that's the most accurate, you know, and gives the most correct information. Ideally, the medium is professional, knows how to talk to people, is no-nonsense doesn't start going on for 10 minutes about what a piece of information can mean. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't want the medium to tell me what they think. I want them to be a a channel for the information as a, just as a, you know, like a a radio receiver, you know, receiving the signal and you're hearing, you know, the, the information that comes out. So there are certain mediums, every medium has a different style. You know, lots of mediums uh, I find, that the way they communicate information matches up with their personality in real life. 
you know, people that are very shy and reserved kind of are very deliberate and soft-spoken when they're doing a reading. Others that are, um, it's almost, you know, that are frenetic and, they're, you know, ADD. Strong and personalities. Yeah. Strong personalities. And they give information the same way, you know, and, you know, in rapid fire, you know, some, some mediums can spend 20 minutes, you know, with, you know, in a group setting, you know, with one person going on and on. So there's no right or wrong. It's just the way people deliver the information. But I think that the bottom line is you want, you know, the mediums that make the connections more often that are more consistent and are more accurate. And when it comes to mediumship, how do you specifically measure accuracy? What do you consider to be an accurate reading? Do you have like a meter or something that you use? We, we have five different methods. You know, as I think I mentioned, the, the medium does five different readings for five different sitters. The sitters score the information. And then we look at all the scoring sheets, and they're, they're rated based upon the percentage of accuracy. You know, the best mediums in the world are somewhere – in the you know 80, 85 to ninety percent accurate. In other words, nine out of ten pieces of information that they give you are correct. And we have certain guidelines, evidence that specific is weighted more heavy. Uh, some of our scoring methods discount the maybes. In other words, if I give you a piece of information, if I say to you, you know, Jimbo, you I have your uncle Jack here, and he was in the Air Force. And, and you didn't know if you had an Uncle Jack, so you don't you didn't know how to score it. But later you go and you ask your family members and they say, Oh yeah, Uncle Jack, it's a fighter pilot. You know, it's, you know, so sometimes you find out, you know, information uh, later. Uh, but in some of the what I find, especially with the inexperienced mediums, you know, it's not you know, there's a column of hits and there's a column of misses, information that's true, information that that's not true. But 80% of the information is maybes. So you have a whole rating with all maybes, you know, and that's not evidential. So if they give you three pieces of information that's correct and 17 pieces of information that are maybe, I don't want to discount the maybes and give you a 100% accuracy rate based on the three. I want to count all of that information in some of the scoring methods. So it's involved. We have extensive applications before they get to that place. We have we we interview them. It's a multi-step pro- process. You know, some people that are out there, there are these organizations that you know. Okay, send me three hundred bucks, and we'll certify you, and we'll put you on our website, and we'll charge. By the way, we'll charge you a hundred hours a month to, to be listed on our website. We don't want, <laughs> but you know, we never charge any medium for going through the process, and if they're certified, they get put on the uh, on the website. <laughs> Any, if any money exchanged hands, that would dilute the integrity of the program. So, you know, we can't have that. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there, a lot of mediums, some mediums themselves that certify other mediums, you know, and, and that that's not right. And there are organizations, like I said, that, you know, you do one reading and they say, okay, here, and pay me and you get certification. A lot of that, that goes on. Well, I think one big thing is the power comes from the certification. What do you think credits the weight of your certification so much? Like when people see that a medium has that certification, people are like, wow, this is the real deal. What makes it different from 
something else. Like I think what you said about medium certifying another medium kind of go into that. Well, you know, when we originally designed it, it was sort of like the good housekeeping, good housekeeping seal of approval. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. You know, I used to go a seal that used to go on products, but I've heard of it. Yeah, we just we just want to uh, we wanted to have a reliable resource. Look, it's probably. Thousands of mediums out there in the world that are wonderful. They're not certified by us because they never came to us. But we don't solicit any mediums. They have to come to us. Um, And we wish more would, you know. But I think that over the years, people have realized that the mediums that are certified by us, what I was saying before, they're more consistent. They rarely have a bad reading. They rarely, really uh, don't make a connection. Um, and so that people can rely upon them, not to say that they can't rely upon other mediums that, you know, that haven't come to us, but it's, it, uh, not only that, the mediums that have, we've certified over the years have, most of them have gone on to work with scientists at various universities and private research centers that doing mediumship research, you know, they use, the scientists use our mediums as, as a, as a pool of, of mediums to, to participate in their research. So, and which we, we encourage, you know, we're glad to see that because they can also validate, you know, what we already know. They're looking for not only ways, when I say they, the scientists are looking not only to show that the, that the mediums are, are the real deal and are communicating with the dead, but they're trying to figure out how mediums are able to do it. They, they measure brain waves and, and they try to see if there's a correlation between certain areas in the brain um, that light up or go dark when spirit communication is taking place. And they've studied not only mediums, but meditators and, and, and things to trying to find these, these, the, the mechanism by which these things take place. Nobody really knows, by the way, um, how the process works. I mean, yeah, we say things like mind to mind communication, but we don't truly know, you know, I mean, how some people are able to do it and some people are not. Um, but what we do know is that people have been having direct contact in all sorts of different after-death communications in many, many different forms since the dawn of man you know, all over the world. So, you know, it, it's it's something that can't be ignored. And, you know, we just anecdotal evidence can be just as strong as scientific evidence when it's repeated you know, over and over and over again by so many people in so many different parts of the world among so many diverse cultures. You know? Very good. And if you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give to yourself right now to bring yourself to the place you are now? Well, I, you know, I mean, listen, I, like like everybody else, I mean, I did a lot of suffering, you know, I mean, losing a child, um, losing, uh, you know, my wife, you know, I think that I often think that when my time comes, you know, and I physically die and I cross over and then I, I open my eyes and I say, holy crap, I'm not dead. I was right. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I mean, I think that we inflict this suffering upon ourselves. So maybe the advice that I would give myself is I shouldn't have spent so much time wallowing in my grief because this is just a blip of existence, you know. People are not, our loved ones on the other side are not grieving for us. They're alive and they have a different perspective and they know they're going to see us, you know, again. We grieve because we love. And I think that we also have a reliance. We think that everything is 
permanent. And, you know, we're, we're, we're on this, um, this solid earth and we build our roots and everything is going to last forever. And people do everything they can to prevent death and, you know, try to live forever. And it's kind of odd that we, we think that everything is so permanent. We're on this spinning orb that's traveling a thousand miles an hour in space, you know, and yet we think that every, everything is so permanent. But I think that I, I still use this as a, in my grief is I keep saying to myself, physical life is temporary. It's all temporary. You know, we're just, we're just here for, you know, we're, we're all on, on a train. We get off at different stops, but we all get off um, and we're going someplace else, you know? So, you know, don't, uh, it also was a reminder to me, which I would encourage others to do, is to experience more deeply, you know, approach everything with the understanding that it may not be there tomorrow, you know, so, you, I mean, you should, you should enjoy more, you know, you should love more, you should communicate better with people, because ultimately, you know, that's all we have, and that's what will carry us as we continue on. Very good. And are there any final takeaways, any final things you would like to tell the audience before we let you off here? No, I, I would just, I would just, it's important. It's important for everybody to be an open-minded skeptic. That's a big difference between being a skeptic where you're just closed off to everything. Take everything in, evaluate it and make your own judgment. You know, don't dismiss everything, anything, because you were told that there can't be, you know, I mean, people are challenged today because if they accept some of these things, everything that they've been taught in school and in life is wrong. It challenges, you know, that their, their very being. So I, my advice to everybody is just pay more attention, you know, or see more deeply and remain, op- remain open-minded. Very good. Good job, sir. So I'm Jimbo Paris and this is the Jimbo Paris show. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Jimbo. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Jimbo Parish Show. 